Hello, and welcome back to Ultra Rare, the podcast, a show where we dive into the space of decentralized science. We're also going to be covering art, NFTs, philanthropy, and more. For today's episode, I interview Ethan Perlstein, who leads Perlara, a company that I see as one of the leaders in the decentralized biotech space. Ethan operates using a group of global scientists to identify cures for rare diseases. We talk about the evolution of Perlara in this episode, and I hope you learn a lot from what he's done in this space. If you enjoy this content, please consider subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I'd like to welcome Ethan Perlstein, head of Perlara. He is part of a movement within the biotech space that I call decentralized biotech. And he leads a team of distributed scientists to find guided cures for families and foundations with rare diseases and has been making some incredible progress on that front. And so I feel very lucky to share his story today with you all. So welcome, Ethan. Glad to be here. Awesome. So let's start back at the beginning with how you got the idea for Perlara, which I believe you founded in 2014. Well, um, I really was kind of, um, I guess, not unique in retrospect, but experiencing a lot of angst about getting an academic job. And I called it the postocalypse and kind of figured out how to blog and use social media um, in a productive way, you know, on, on the back of that, <laughs> that, that announcement and sharing that with the world and, and found that there's a lot of other people in the same boat. Um, so I, I, I went to grad school, just sort of, a, sort of blithely assuming I would be able to just replicate the success of my mentors. And they were all very quite successful people and took a lot of stuff, I guess, blissfully for granted and thought I, you know, thought just if I focused on science and papers happened and then magically a job happened and grants happened. And um, so, yeah, I, I definitely was very much um, not very much disconnected from reality in the way that I'm now very connected to reality running a business at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, I knew that I wanted to get out of academia and I wanted to uh, do something entrepreneurial because my postdoc was really as independent fellowship, which was um, not cast that way, but really was a sort of a little, my, my first startup. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was called Pearlstein Lab. If uh, it would have been called that if I'd stayed in academia. And so when I created what became Perlar, I called it Pearlstein Lab because I was not trying to be uh, egotistical, but just didn't, you know, that's, that's what everyone called their, they, they named after them, you know, people named labs other results in academia. So I'm like, well, okay, I'm starting a academic biotech startup. And it's, I wanted to signal that it was not your typical, you know, uh, uh, you know, biotech startup, there was this uh, academic, academic roots to it. Um, but, you know, I didn't study rare diseases. I didn't study, um, you know, human genetics per se. Uh, I was sort of interested in what I called evolutionary pharmacology and um, was kind of just obsessed with studying psychopharmacology in, in the simplest possible system I could, like a yeast, which it didn't even have a brain, um, and trying to like build up a theory of of psychopharmacology from the ground up. So that was that was my scientific uh, orientation. And then 
realizing that, oh, I need to do, do something in the real world. Um, like nobody was going to let me just continue to explore um, that, 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 that kind of uh, blend of applied and basic science. And there was really no home for it. And, and then I realized, oh, if I just shifted the focus away from psychopharmacology to these rare genetic diseases, I could still take advantage of the model of systems that I had, you know, become very fond of like yeast and, and then eventually worms and flies. And, but then there would be a real purpose to this. Um, it wouldn't just be total blue sky fanciful. It would be like science applied um, for real people. And that's kind of like the, really the genesis of, of Perlara. Did you get hooked on that idea of the science being something translational and moving beyond that space of academic research? Yeah, there was a period as I got on Twitter and started to also just see people talking about their corners of the world, you start to put up, it starts to put up a mirror to academia and all the things that I had sort of just taken for granted and all the things I thought I wanted started to question, like, did I really want a tenure track position, you know, at some Ivy League school? And, um, you know, did I, did I really want what that seemingly, if I played the tape out, like, what did that mean? It, it, it it meant eventually that all that I seemed to care about would be publishing papers, more papers, more high-profile papers, and would have trainees that were counting on my name and my 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 funding, presumably to uh, to replicate the success for them. Um, so, like this idea that somehow when you get tenured, you'll you'll go back to your revolutionary past and your revolutionary youth, and like it just seemed as I was trying to apply for jobs and seeing people just a year or two ahead of me and the experience and the realities of the assistant professor search and, and you know, your idealism versus just the, the brutal reality of getting a job and then getting, you know, then getting, getting, then getting reliable funding. It all started to kind of come together that, oh, this is not just going to be some <laughs> fantasy. Uh, this is like going to be really hard. Uh, and I wasn't really um, prepared or wanting to play the politics that it seemed it would take to also do to succeed at the highest levels in academia. Um, not that I didn't feel like I couldn't, you know, be strategic and, you know, do the, do the, the palace politics if necessary, but I just didn't want to do it for that, for that cause. Um, Cause I'd already, you know, been kind of burned by the fact that I insisted on publishing open access, um, but then ended up putting what I thought was really good work into plus one and then getting it sort of either ignored or ridiculed as um, is clearly not something of high, high impact or of worth, worth noticing. So I basically sabotaged whatever glimmer of hope I had of getting an academic job because I published in a place that was seen at that time as like <laughs> a, a, failed, a failed outlet, let's say. Um, and yeah, so I just thought, I don't want to have to be a part of a system where I had to play this game. And, and, and so I know I'm not the first and certainly had the privilege to be able to say that out loud on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of publicly decided I wasn't interested in, in all that. And I wanted to do something that was 180 degrees away that was going to matter in, in, the, in you know, even every day's activity was going to matter to someone real in the real world. Uh, so I made that decision like almost 10 years ago that I needed to be fulfilled scientifically by by the science mattering um, in the real world, not just because it got me invited to give talks or because a few peers of mine thought I was smart because of it. I think that's actually, I mean, I guess maybe because we both work more on this industry facing side or biotech side, but I feel like 
I hear this a lot from scientists, this arc of thinking that academia will be the home long-term and then coming to a place of not being fulfilled by it or being disenchanted by the mechanisms in place. Um, the publishing example you gave is really interesting. I kind of wonder if that would be something that would even happen today because I do mm. feel like the field has progressed a little bit and um, overcome some of those, uh, I don't know what, what you might call them, but scientific publishing uh, hurdles in a way. Um, and I'm, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but you've now had this year a pretty big announcement um, as far as a drug that actually came out of your work with Perlara that is now going into a phase three study. Do you feel even more empowered that you're in the right place on the right track doing what you're meant to be doing, even though you kind of fell into it in a way or just was reacting to the negative environment of academia. Yeah. I mean, it definitely feel, I feel justified <laughs> that, um, that all the sacrifice was kind of worth it because that's, I mean, and that's what a lot of biotech people say. So I, I do feel, you know, we, we aren't there yet. We have to complete a trial and all this, we have to enroll the trial, but I feel like just, uh, getting this far um, was was what I wanted. That was the whole point. Was even just to, even just to get here. Um, and so obviously, getting here means I want to I want to finish it, and then I want to do it again and again and again and again. So, yeah, um, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty special feeling to know that your science is mattering, and and then you you want to you want to do that over and over and over again because <laughs> it's really great feeling. Yeah. So I want to really dive into kind of each of the phases of this journey because Perlara, you started in 2014, we're now in 2022. It's certainly pivoted and evolved in many different ways. You even, I think, took some time away from it. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you walk us through what the early days were kind of like, what, what the team was focused on, how the team looked and what it was like starting that type of company at that point in time. Cause I think you're, you're among a group of people that I see as pioneers in a sense of starting companies in this space when it wasn't as common as it is today. And we're seeing just this boom in early stage biotech today, but, and a lot of support as well, but you didn't really have that, I feel like, it back in 2014. So can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Yeah. Um, the, the people who were, it was a frontier and, you know, there were people like Max Hodak, who now has achieved some level of, of distinguished distinguishment, uh, Elizabeth Irons, science exchange, um, you know, um, now they're kind of, uh, besmirched, but you know, the Ubiome founders, uh, let's not forget we're part of I'm not going to erase them from history. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was a small group of people who were the first kind of pioneers out of academia, either postdoc, grad school, well, it wasn't really grad school yet, but out of postdoc or assistant professorship 
to be like, yeah, I'm out and I'm going to try this startup thing. Um, so I was watching Shark Tank back in those days to learn like, what does evaluation mean? What does a negotiation look like? I didn't know any of that stuff. And, you know, Obama signed the Jobs Act in 2012. That really felt like that was the beginning, you know, Facebook IPO creates all this, you know, next generation of, of tech angels, you know, um, before them was, was, you know, was the Google people, but now you've got this kind of next generation of tech VCs and startup people in the Valley, like getting, getting all excited about biotech, but there was no infrastructure, right? The first UCSF, you know, uh, incubator was called the garage because it was, it was very skeuomorphic, right? It was like, oh, to build the biotech incubator, it's literally take the tech Palo Alto garage model. And, and so that was, that, how, that's what those days were like. And that, it was eight years ago, so it's not like that long ago, but it feels like a, a long ass time ago. Um, <laughs> but but back in those days, yeah, I kind of built Perlara or, or Perlstein Lab, let's say tw from 20, February 2014 to, to kind of the rebrand um, in uh, kind of post YC in the kind of fall of 2016. That first run of, of Perlara, it was really just doing what I'd done at Princeton as an independent fellow and having a budget of 200K per year over and million dollars over five years. Like I was just taking that playbook and now, and just copying it and just, but doing it now in what was called QB3 at 953, which was like the first space outside of UCSF at the, the Mission Bay site that was just dedicated brand spanking new lab space. You could rent by the bench, you could rent by the desk. It was like, you know, they, they figured, you know, Doug Crawford did their credit. They figured out exactly how to set up a space like that. And then there, there really weren't anything like that available across the country. Um, the kind of, the, the, the comparable thing was Lab Central that popped up in, in Cambridge, but that was catering to a VC-backed kind of new co-crowd. And, you know, it wasn't back to what we call startups, right? They would call themselves startups, but there's, there were spin outs and uh, I'm not trying to get into the founder-led, you know, wars here, but back then that was, there was no setup in Boston. Um, and like to do, to do, you know, to do this kind of work out of grad school. Um, like, you know, maybe you heard of people somehow finagling a bench here or there, or there's some random more like biohacker-ish, you know, space that was available, but, you know, and that was basically the same in San Francisco. I remember seeing a company called 3Scan and later ended up in some other fate, but they had a space called Langdon, Lab, Langdon Labs, you know, on Langdon Street in SF in like soma and that was i remember seeing their space in 20 2011 that that period and it was like down in the down like uh, under uh, you know underneath the resident the part where they all lived in this commune like setting and they had these lists this like super you know high tech but um but clearly like just parts everywhere wires splayed everywhere like that kind of a setup like that was that was that was the frontier so qe393 that was like a big deal to get proper lab space um, so yeah, I, I built up what I learned at Princeton the previous five years. Like I, I learned, I knew how to hire people. Um, and I knew that we had a special mission and that was really the secret sauce ultimately. Um, but then it was operating a space where we started at one bench, one desk. Um, you know, I have a tweet to commemorate that. And then each time we added a best desk or a bay, I would kind of tweet it out and we, we grow eventually to like, we reach capacity there. Um, and that was the point when it stopped being an out, you know, Perlar, Perlstein Lab was really the beginning, the beginning of just an outgrowth of a, of a, of a, of a concept. 
um, you know, uh, outgrowth of a meeting at Rare Disease Day where it was clear that, okay, there is a need to, to work with these families and foundations and the science we're trying to do by focusing on model systems is really, there's like a, a, a you know, um, a disease uh, um, sort of uh, model fit, if you will. So yeah, we, we just kind of were super scrappy. I, I, I kind of, I think, assumed a lot of the characteristics of a young assistant professor at a, you know, a tenure track, but I was just doing it in a in the startup venue where instead of, you know, everyone commiserating about like the grants and the rejected grants, we commiserated about rejected invest, you know, invest, you know, rejected, you know, rejections from investors and no's from whatever. But it was a, yeah, similar types of, I think, concerns that a, an early assistant professor would be facing trying to like get tenure or in the case of like us, get, get like secure funding, like not just what ended up being like four seed rounds stitched together and, you know, calling them a bunch of them an A round, but it was all just cosmetics, like raising an institutional backed VC round. That was like, that was like getting tenure. Um, and you usually did that within, you know, four or five years of starting up um, or, or less, usually actually less, but like by the time you get to, let's say series B, when it was really clear that they were going to let you keep the CEO job and you could grow the company, like that was going to take five years from inception. Um, and so you knew you had to buckle up for those five years. So the first half of that was, was Pearlstein Lab. So where did your funding primarily come from? Was it grants and angel investing or? So I, I was like, because I had gone on Twitter, I thought my great insight was everyone told you, oh, you want to start a company out of academia? Great. Write an SBIR. And then it's like, TikTok, wait, 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 wait. And I said, no, no, thanks. I watch Shark Tank. I, I, I'm on this thing called Twitter. And this is, you know, I'm just going to bypass that. I'm going to go straight to the people. And, and having done a crowdfunding campaign um, to kind of crowdfund a meth lab, which you don't really, we don't need to get into that. Like that taught me that, okay, it's possible to raise money from strangers with the right message. And then that just was like a trial run for from raising from Silicon Valley investors, right? Getting people to click on a Rocket Hub was like the next level. Okay, and said, thanks for $50 donation. Here's a 3D printed meth molecule. It's like, oh, how about $25,000? Would you like a safe or a convertible note? <laughs> At that time, convertible note. Um, so, you know, that was the mindset was I was going to raise the money um, from investors. And that's why I moved to California. And, and uh, that was the whole point of leaving the East Coast is that you, you can't do it out there. You, you're supposed to do that out, out here. Um, and then through Twitter, I met a guy named Martin Shkreli and he ended up being <laughs> my first investor uh, and, you know, ended up, but then, you know, I have a very interesting cap table, probably the most interesting cap table in biotech uh, with, with now people like Mark Cuban. Martin Shkreli's out. He's been out for a while. Uh, not of jail, out of my cap table. Um, he's out of jail later this year. But Martin, but like Mark Cuban's on the cap table, Novartis is on the cap table, Y Combinator is on the cap table, this random UAE family office is on the cap table. So, and then other kind of particular tech angels, biotech angels here and there. Um, so it's kind of an eclectic mix, but Martin capped off the, the or, or began this party round, as we would have called it, um, and yeah, raised $2 million from this party round from a set of investors, which also included Retrofin, which has changed its name since um, um, wisely to avoid the, the, the stink of the, S, the SEO. Um, but, but yeah, they're technically still an investor in the company as well. So it's a really interesting, you know, cap table, you know, in, in a lot of ways, which I was proud of that we could put together this coalition of investors, but it was, it was weird and <laughs> strange bedfellows. And, um, it was a slog, like basically every year it was topping up and raising, you know, 2 million that first go. And then basically a million having to raise a million 
for the next two years. And then, and then, yeah, drips and drabs from there. Different times than today, I would say. <laughs> so you, you really started it out as a centralized lab company following kind of the, the centralized Silicon Valley fundraising model. Today, Perlara looks much different than that. Can you walk us through the evolution of how it became what it is today and, and maybe just give a broad summary of how you run Perlara today? Yeah, so oh, let me try to get to that. So the, the, the Perlstein Lab to Perlara transition, that's end of 2016. Um, that begins the, the, the era where I thought I had figured out product market fit um, using this centralized model of financing it and of operating it, um, but was starting to get a sense of how this could become decentralized, uh, at least on the community and the operation side. Started to get those first glimmers pretty early on, but nonetheless per persevered because I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta eventually raise that elusive, you know, uh, v you know, institutional-led VC round. Like that was kind of what my my fixation was, um, and so. I began to, to take this model of the Pearl Quest, as we called it, where we worked, we, we kind of found these highly motivated families or they often found us through word of mouth or, you know, through kind of a connection of a connection. And we built a portfolio of these opportunities of working with these foundations, families, uh, even a university try to deal with us and, and, and some other flavors of folks that would sponsor rare disease research. And yeah, we kind of proved that that these groups wanted to enter into arrangements that that could, you know, that have this kind of joint joint co-development flavor, because um, that was like a big question mark of, you know, why would you do that? Why don't you just why wouldn't you just wholly own everything? Like, so that was like the PBC concept trying to to exert itself. Um, and break that down a little bit. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention. Yeah, we're we're the first biotech PBC or public benefit company. Right. That was sort of like the big mission or the, the big organizing principle of the company was that, you know, we're on this mission to, to, to solve rare diseases. And we're going to, we're going to partner with families um, that are right now being ignored because it's just not financially or otherwise feasible to work on their disease. Mm -hmm. So we always so wanted you to made a choice to have Perlara be a public benefit corporation in order to kind of bridge between like a nonprofit and a regular corporation is that at least bridge it in the messaging and the and in the language because as a under the hood a PBC is still a C corp in Delaware mm -hmm. at least we're a Delaware PBC so we're like a Delaware C corp we're treated effectively seen that way but from the beginning there's no tax advantage to the investor or anything so none of that's materialized yet but it it serves a kind of rhetorical um, purpose of of being able to uh, you know say, hey, we have this organizing structure um, and on paper, it's meant to strike this balance between maximizing profit and, and maximizing the mission. Mm -hmm. and, and Martin's whole point was that, oh, remember, I, I'm supposed to do this. Like, why are you complaining about me raising the price? That's my job. Like my job as investor, as a, as a CEO is to return, uh, uh, you know, to make return for my investor. And if I don't do that, they have grounds to sue me, in fact. So the whole PBC charter was kind of meant to immunize you from that either. So you don't, you, you didn't have to say, well, if I don't maximize profit though, my investors will be mad and come after me. 
Now you're saying, no, here's actually intentionally why I didn't mark it up 6,000% because we're this PVC and we have this, we take this public benefit into consideration. So Are it you- sounds like it's kind of a blend of a nonprofit and for-profit. It, that's, that's, that it's kind of a rhetorical average, but like functionally speaking, it's still a for-profit. Sure. Are you saying though, this is interesting. Are you saying that part of the motivation for you in wanting Perlar to be a public benefit corporation, which I'm a big fan of public benefit corporations in the biotech space. I just want to say that. Um, and I think it's a great model um, but are you saying that this was almost a reaction to what Martin Shkreli was doing with his biotech company? So it wasn't. So when I met Martin, he had not been known or wasn't infamous yet for price gouging because I met him in January 2014. It was that at that time, though, in 2013, there were lots of people in pharma, at least, talking about, at least they were talking in the rare disease context about how, oh, we care about you patients, but they weren't able to figure out any way to, to move the science forward because it was still those early days. So I wanted to say, well, if I'm going to work with these rare disease families, I'm not just going to talk about being patient-centric and not have anything to follow through. I'm going to at least have a company that on paper is obligated to do it. And then ironically, then meeting someone like Martin, whose lawyers didn't care two wits about this back in, you know, in April of 2014 when they were reviewing the closing documents, and then, yeah, Martin doesn't go on to do his price raising thing until the following summer, actually. Because honestly, if he had had that profile by 2015, I, I'm pretty sure I would have, I'm pretty sure I knew myself, I would have avoided him like the plague. But <laughs> when I met him, he was like this rock star. They, they were talking about him as like the next ML Kakis and the Trophins and next Ultragenics. And, you know, so just keep that in mind as well. Yeah, I remember those days. I remember reading about him before like the blow up too and just you know, this like biotech wonderkind who didn't have a PhD in, you know, biomedical anything and could read a medical textbook and wandered around the office without shoes on or something. But exactly. Yep. (laughs) But I I get again, I want to I want to emphasize because I think this is something that's really interesting and important about Perlara is this public benefit corporation aspect and that it is upfront. It is in the name. And it isn't very common yet in this space. And so I hope, you know, that this conversation in part inspires folks to contemplate models that might be outside of the normal um, biotech or pharma model um, that can be more focused on the patient or put more emphasis on um, the patient. So I love that that's an aspect of your business. So Let's dive into some of the success, recent success that Perlara has had. In January of this year, a phase three trial was announced for uh, a rare disease. And I, I believe that the drug came out of that initial, more centralized phase of Perlara. Is that correct? Yeah. So over like 2017 till kind of the peak of the centralized, you know, phase or the kind of the, the, where Perlara one kind of, um, ends. Yeah. We, we had one project and one family where out of a dozen where the science and the, and the interpersonal, uh, connection was, was there. And, and we just knew that these, the, this family could be good business partners. Um, and unfortunately that, that program was part of a portfolio, which was very expensive to operate in the Bay area at that time. 
with the pricing that we had and with the amount of funding I was able to raise up to that point. And even though there was a hot minute there where we were profitable or broke even, um, we were still burning 250K a month. And so I couldn't, couldn't really sustain it. Um, so that's really was the point at which you realized that the centralized model was just fundamentally not, you know, didn't have profitable economics. And even if we relocated to a cheaper uh, operating environment, um, you know, in principle, we would have to make sure that we'd have the same access to the talent pool we had in the Bay Area. And that really wasn't guaranteed because that was just still pre-COVID, right? So it wasn't obvious how a centralized, um, you know, kind of cure discovery service, which is what Perlara was, was, was actually going to figure out a way to be you know, profitable unless we just cut out the worms and the flies and just maybe focus ruthlessly on yeast and maybe done some other things. But then it would have not been the vision and scope that I had kind of set out to, to build. Um, and so wanted to, yeah, figure out a way to, that we could kind of serve all comers, but that just operationally and economically just didn't, didn't, didn't work out. And there wasn't enough product market fit to, to, that we could overlook that. Um, uh, so yeah, so then basically this, this, this slow, uh, evolution to toward, toward the current model, which is like this decentralized framework and it's and more of like, that the, the company is really a platform of platforms um, instead of trying to be a model organism, you know, drug screening and disease modeling and just drug discovery platform. Now we're a platform of platforms because we can manage research on any modality in any lab. Um, and so it's really the, the protocolification, I guess, of, of, of Perlara. And then I think of biotech more broadly, which is what the, the DSI movement I, I think is tapping into. Um, but yeah, like from 2019 to 20. Um, you know, to 20 to today, the, the success you're mentioning this repurposed trial was just kind of a seedling of a, of a, of a promise back then. And in fact, when the, when COVID was starting um, and the world was about to change um, this pioneer patient named Maggie was about to start taking first dose of this repurposed drug that was born out of the, out of the Perlara one, the kind of the best success of Perlara one. Um, and it became clear that by lockdown, in fact, that, that maybe this drug was starting to have an effect. So that period of kind of Perlara one, you know, post Perlara one, pre Perlara two, that hibernation period was really the success you're talking about sort of incubating and taking shape. Um, and it took a while to, you know, get a year's worth of data. Now we're at two years plus of data from our pioneer patient, but we also got a second patient to, to join an N of two and then an N of three. And collecting and and, and observing observing all that data takes time, um, but you know we were able to go from what amounts to an N of three data set to a phase three, um, which I think is you know pretty pretty good in terms of saving time and cost. Now again, this is a repurposed drug. There's lots of um, wind in our in our sale here and wind at our back, but I still think what we've done offers a a template for how this can be how it can be scaled up, and that's really what Prolar Two is all about: is trying to build that same anti-portfolio, really, of biopharma. Right, all the all the diseases and the, the the genes that are too 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 rare, too weird, that are too fringe, that everyone else is running away from. I'm like, bring it! Like that's exactly where we're flocking toward. Um, but now, how do we do that in a way that I can actually run a business? <laughs> so, on the note of this template, because I just want to make sure I understand this. So the team that you were managing oversaw a drug discovery screen that identified this compound 
Is that correct? Yeah, I would just say drug repurposing screen. But drug repurposing yeah. screen. And then the second kind of second phase was you were able to do N of one clinical studies with that drug. Mm-hmm. How, it, like, what is that process like for people who are less familiar with drug development? Like yeah, how so- long did it take from like initial conversation with the FDA mm-hmm. to, you know, having the results you needed to move forward with this phase three study? Yeah. So we, we, presented the data to FDA in August of 2019 or July of 2019 saying, hey, we've got this yeast and worm data. Actually, it was mostly the worm data we showed. We've got some fibroblast data. It suggests that this, this, this known drug, a Apalrostat, um, you know, has this particular therapeutic effect. It, it increases the enzyme activity that's, that's deficient. That was like the, the data package that we were able to put together and because this was a known drug from Japan and had this long safety record in adults, we were hoping that we didn't need to do much more <laughs> uh, to FDA, for FDA to grant us compassionate use. And, and compassionate access is usually granted to like 90 plus 95% of requests to FDA. But because a power stat was never marketed in the US, it's essentially like a novel chemical entity from FDA's point of view. But we could still introduce all the talks and all the other public data from its life in Japan and kind of get all that credit um, uh, for it, right? And not have to redo all that stuff again. So we had a, we knew we had a really accelerated path that, you know, honestly, if you had another Japanese drug like this, you could you could sort of see that this is replicable that way. But you know, we we, we otherwise knew that because this was repurposing, that we could could eventually skip the line in different places. But we didn't realize how fast and how how many spots maybe we could skip, um, depending on how our observational you know, pioneer studies went, but like, so August 19th, we get authorization from FDA to start dosing Maggie, um, took us several months to procure the drug because we couldn't just like, you know, stuff it into a bag and have someone come over from Tokyo, you know, from a pharmacy and just, just give it to us from, from their, or their, their luggage. Right. Like we had to, we had to document it and get it sent all, all properly. So that took some time. Eventually, we built a relationship with with the drug manufacturer Ono, which which we can come back to because um, they've been helping us uh, supply the, the the clinical API for our study very generously, actually uh, donating it. So Maggie starts her study in January 2020, and yeah, it was pretty clear from by the summer that 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 it was working and that we had some laboratory measurements that were confirming that, and then so August of 2020, we create Maggie's Pearl, which at that point was just the concept, but now there was a reason to create this joint venture. Maggie's study had been, Maggie's N of one was successful. A second N of one was about to start. Um, and we, we thought that was the trigger point to make a joint venture. And we had, you know, I met, I, we met the, you know, Perlar and the Carmichael family started working together in January, 2017. We were introduced by Matt Might, kind of like one of the OG in, in, in Rare. So we had spent at that point, many years getting to know each other and working through the science and working through some highs and lows. Um, and yeah, and that, it just proved that we were, I think we were, uh, meant to be good business partners. And so we created Maggie's Pearl and then, um, we started a, a, a negotiation with FDA and, uh, last summer, June of 2021, we proposed an open label phase two study, um, you know, and, uh, we went back and forth with FDA on, they didn't like that. And so we went back and forth over six months on what trial design they would accept and, as many people have talked about, they, they wanted to randomize, double-blind, placebo-controlled, all that, even though this is a tiny population. 
So yeah, we had to negotiate what our endpoints would be and all of the intricacies of what the trial involved in the protocol. And that took six months, but on December 29th, I think of 2021, we got the authorization to, to move forward. And right now we're just uh, uh, sort of buttoning up our, our CDMO, our contract drug manufacturer to make sure we've got all the pills and, and all the dosage forms and all that uh, lined up and all our stability, stability release studies all, all completed. So yeah, we're hopeful to have Mayor IRB approval in the next uh, few weeks or so, then we can officially start to recruit. And then we wanna really kind of have the community be organized. And we've been, we, we take advantage of the fact that this community already knows each other and that you know, maybe we can even set up clinic days where a bunch of families can show up together and we can get economies of scale that way when they're all visiting sort of uh, Mayo at the same time. So really excited for this next phase of execution. Um, but yeah, all the while, you know, the, the question is, could you make more Maggie's Pearls? What is the way to bring more Maggie's Pearls into the world? The Perlara one way is not the scalable way. <laughs> um, it's not really the lifestyle business way either. It's, it's, I think it's fundamentally, it's just, it's the costs are just too expensive to do exploratory research um, uh, unless we just make fewer mistakes. <laughs> but the best scientists have to, you know, fail their way to, to success and to working through a problem. So that risk will always be there. Um, but yeah, I think we've mitigated a lot of the risk by just decentralizing and virtualizing and all the things maybe we can get to in the remainder here. It seems like you've learned so much over the course of this, you know, the, the lifetime of this one drug and this, this process. And mm -hmm. I really want to be able to help communicate what that process looks like, this template and bring clarity to what some of those phases are like and your hope for this model, because I'm guessing that you know, while you want to repeat this, you know, for Perlara, for other rare disease families, you also likely support more people outside of Perlara exploring this option mm -hmm. and being able to identify cures for, for diseases all over the world. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm still curious, like, because I've seen your your chatter on Twitter, and I know that you're very supportive of the decentralized uh, philosophy, I would call it. And you know, you've you've chatted a bit about DAOs and uh, some of the concepts that have come out of the decentralized finance space. Um, so DAOs, you know, for for new listeners, are decentralized autonomous organizations. The concept. That kind of came about back in 2016, I believe. And they're essentially groups of people that are forming um, to work on different problems, um, to raise funding for different, uh, different, um, you know, businesses. And 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 within the patient community, there's this idea that perhaps we can start to form DAOs for uh, patient communities so that patients can come together, pool resources and find solutions for the diseases that they are struggling with. So mm -hmm. getting back to my question, how much influence did that have on your pivot to a decentralized biotech model for Prolara? And how are you thinking about this just with the recent influx of all of this DSI conversation that's been happening online? Yeah, I mean, definitely I pick up on all that chatter, but I think I kind of arrived at it through um, just sort of uh, 
through through the evolution of product market fit, and then realizing that, um, like the if the unit economics were just impossible to get to work, if you have scientists doing physical scientists doing physical experiments in the lab, then the the, the, the most straightforward way to, to reduce the cost is to just could, could they do those experiments in their head? <laughs> um, uh, so I think. I didn't have any obvious way to, or I didn't have any obvious insights, you know, and how that would work. But in early 2019, when I was, you know, had to lay everybody off and, and Pearl R1 kind of went into this spoilation state, um, you know, frankly, kind of kind of make money and make ends meet. Um, I was fortunate that one of the accounts contact put in contact with somebody who was, whose child was recently diagnosed and, and ended up kind of working as their, 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 you know, at the time was calling it a, uh, uh, CSO coach uh, or scientific coach um, or CSO for hire, you know, different names, and um, and 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 then realized, okay, someone's willing to just pay, uh, you know, for for my presence on calls, let's say, because they just don't know what's really being said and what's going on, and they need someone to be able to whisper afterwards what happened here. Um, and then so that's not like some new business idea, right? That's just that's just being a consultant. But I think. Kind of connecting the dots and realizing that oh this kind of consulting function but for a client that's on a mission to make a cure um you know no one had codified that process like it was all just wild west and so it just felt like oh wait a minute now there i mean i'm encountering multiple families that are talking about needing a scientific coach um or a cso for hire um or rent a scientist like people were kind of expressing it different ways and then realized aha this is product market fit kind of whispering in my ear saying, this is got to figure out a way to build a business around this. Um, and so for 2019, I didn't really think more of it because it was just a way to make, make some money consulting. I, I ended up getting a job with the Christopher Reeve Foundation for a while as their CSO that got derailed by, by COVID, but I was kind of expecting and was outside of the rare disease world for a stretch there um, and then kind of came back in uh, exactly the time when the whole world was virtualizing and, and, and remote work was becoming work. Um, and so then, yeah, all the pieces started to really come together, uh, you know, about a year ago when, um, yeah, it just became so clear that there was enough demand for, for this kind of cure consulting service and that by, my, by doing it by myself uh, and doing it for a few cases, um, you know, I kind of was able to, to convince myself, yeah, this actually can work. Then... Uh, last summer decided, okay, let's open this experiment up because I know why I'm into this and why this works. Uh, for me, can I now scale this? And of course, like last summer was sort of the, the, the peak of Web3 mania um, and, and of the early adopters and everyone sort of t talking about it and everyone talking about NFTs and, and all this. Like, so that was, that was so, that was obviously in the ether. So I wouldn't say that that was the thing that made me realize I needed to decentralize and go down the rabbit hole. It was more that I was, you know, I experienced the, the market conditions and the market was telling me I've got product market fit here. And then the rest of the world caught up with this idea that, um, you know, things should be decentralized, things should be distributed. Uh, and then that just played very conveniently into um, the fact that I figured out, I think a way to, to generate a, a business around this concept. Awesome. Can you give us a high level overview of, you know, how many of these guided cures, how big the team is? Yeah. 
Uh, we're, we're just shy of, uh, of 30, had count of 30, I guess. Um, and we call it, we call it ourselves now Cure Guides. Uh, although, you know, Cure Consultant, I guess, is the most generic form. We had kind of used Cure Sherpa, but I think that metaphor kind of outgrown it. Uh, Cure Broker, Health Broker, that's another concept we talk about. But, but yeah, um, I, th there is no perfect metaphor for this um, other than sort of saying we're, we're kind of this platform of platforms. But yeah, we've got 30 cure guides from, you know, all representing all around the world from, you know, from Hong Kong to, to local here in the Bay Area. Um, and we have about 15 different guided cures that we're working on. And um, one we just launched involves, you know, helping in license a phase one ready asset on behalf of a foundation and working with a, a kind of marquee biotech company to, to do this. Um, and you know that's at the one most advanced end, and on the other end, we're still working with individual families who have an ultra rare or N of one variant, even, and are looking for us to potentially guide them, um, and then everything kind of in between. Um, so yeah, it's pretty exciting times, and I think the the real next challenge is going to be, I think, how do we take advantage of DAOs, for example, and you know take these global distributed communities of scientists, families, funders. Um, how do we make sure that data, know-how, all that's transferred in seamless, frictionless ways? Um, and how do we make sure that we can utilize blockchain technology to help make that happen, to de-silo things if that's what's needed? Um, and I, you know, we're looking for groups to, to do experiments in that front. But I think fundamentally, there's got to be also a, we're going to have to come up with some kind of an experiment in DAOs where we're saying, here are groups that are hyper-fragmented because they're all like these ultra-rare diseases but they're all genes in like the same pathway, right? Let's say they're all genes in glycosylation pathways. Why on earth would we be tackling each of them alone? Forget about data silo and operational silo. It's, it's insane when it may turn out that because the biology is linked, that it pays to pool your resources. And the, 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 when one benefits, others benefit um, if you kind of organize yourself by disease and biology. So I'm looking to see how Dow can supercharge those experiments, but it's not like my approach always to Web3 has been that, yes, this is a sort of secular trend that's going to happen, but I'm not like a maxi of anything. I'm kind of like, I'm a, I guess I'm a maxi, I'm a, I'm a maxi moderate, like I'm maximally moderate about lots of things. Uh, so I want to definitely try and experiment, um, but I, I also don't want to just do it for the sake of it being a Web3 experiment, which, you know, is what happens a lot. And, and you know, having seen like the open science movement, which, you know, we don't call it that anymore. But back when we, I was starting out on Twitter, we called what, 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 what you would now like call the people who were into VitaDAO, right? Back then they would have called themselves open science, right? And, yeah. and, and the big knock on that was it was a lot of white dudes who were like, <laughs> like basically all looking the same and kind of echoing the same ideas. And a lot of them had a very strong power base in Europe as well. And that didn't help with the diversity part. Mm -hmm. But like, I also see elements of that repeating because that just any fad and anything that's big, a big movement, you know, is going to have that element. But yeah, I think ultimately I want to participate in experience with people that, that look toward inclusion and inclusivity mm -hmm. here and don't just kind of, you know, bang that the web three drum because you can and not, and not just join the discord of the, the same usual suspects who are excited about this, but like um, actually think about this beyond, beyond, beyond those core enthusiasts. I think that's a great point. So have you, have you jumped into to any of the discords or any of the projects or are there any that you're observing from afar that, that you might want to share or chat about? 
mean, you can, as you may know, like from our Slack, like I, I can barely, I, I, I can barely keep my head above water wanting to make myself available just for Perlara's Slack because part of the commitment I've made to the distributed model is that, you know, I, I still have a, a personal life and a family and I, I need to have some, some boundaries, but like when it's working hours for sure, I owe it to the model that I can just be pinged at any time and just, I need to be able to build my schedule so I can do that. So, and I already make enough to side, side time for Clubhouse and, and Twitter. If I had to get into discords as well, I would literally have nothing to do. I, I would have no time to do anything productive for work. So I'm just, yeah, if, if it bubbles up to Twitter, then I'll get the, the gist of it. But otherwise, like we've got some focus we have projects, we have partners that want to work on some focused projects in, in the crypto and blockchain space. And yeah, well, when we're ready to kind of say what we've done, I think that's where you'll see um, my kind of action. Until then, I'm, I'm pleasantly just uh, watching, <laughs> for the most part, the, the debate go on. Makes sense. And and good for you to <laughs> stay out of some of these spaces, because I, I think it's something that needs to be talked about more is... Uh, the burnout that happens as a part of web three work and discord servers. And, you know, I need to certainly limit myself in that regard, uh, in my evening. So I totally understand. Um, so I guess I, I in a forward thinking way, um, you know, if, if we don't want to talk specifically about any of these, uh, web three projects, but, with with the idea that um, patient communities forming organizations coming together, uh, utilizing some of the resource or incentive structures that have been described within the Web3 space, what do you see as you know one or two ideal outcomes from the DSI movement over the next couple of years? Well, where I'm most thinking about seeing a, a solution here is the problem I encountered the past weekend. I was, I was mentioning the CDG community, 170 different genes under the same or roughly similar phenotypic umbrella. And how on earth are you supposed to come with an operating structure and a governance structure that allows for this group of people that are spread out across the world? They have you know, they have a different CDG subtype, but as I said, they're, they're, it's all in the family. So they're more related to each other than they are to anybody else. Um, how do they decide how to pool resources and how to spend, make funding decisions? Um, again, how do they do this in a way that's frictionless, seamless, that can, that's globally kind of globally native? Um, how, you know, how do they then figure out what to do with, with, with ownership uh, and how does community you know, vote on all these important decisions, right? Aren't all these the kinds of questions people are grappling with in DAOs and how people talk about, well, that's what the whole use case is here. So uh, yeah, until, until I see the use case, I, I tend to want to minimize my, my Twitter chatting about it. But, but now that it's become so viscerally clear in a community that I've come to know well, that that is a community that's not on Discord. And none of these families has any time to, <laughs> to even know what Discord is, let alone some of them may not even know what Slack is. So if you're taking people where they are and not expecting them to become digital savvy, like all they care about is I want a solution, right? I want a solution that handles governance, ownership, 
voting on these scientific decisions, voting on what happens with data, voting on, like they need structures to do that. And right now, like what they have is basically these foundations, these nonprofits interacting with each other in this sort of confederation, but it, nothing, no standards, no, no interoperability. Like it's a complete, you know, all volunteer driven. It's, it's, it's not code driven. It's a complete mess. So what if all of these transactions, contracts, uh, these, these, these contingencies, all of that, it's not in the hands of like a volunteer workforce. That's also usually caretaking for mathematically fragile family members. What if that can all be taken away and, and, and made into code or made into ways where people could feel like their voices are being heard. They can safely pull their money. They can see the transparency where it's going to get them, but they're also like, understand this is a community effort. And if one person tries to go off and do something else, it's going to end up backfiring. And because of the commonality of these genes that they have more in common than they have different, it doesn't pay to go rogue. It pays actually to keep the community together. So I, I don't know if, if DAOs are, if that's the right solution here. And, and for CDGs, that's definitely the, the, the poster child that needs this, this kind of a pilot experiment. So that's kind of where my head is. And hopefully, you know, others can, can join in and we can make some progress on that, on that particular front. I think that's a great point. Another idea that's been raised online and I think is being talked about more is the revolution of philanthropy via crypto and utilizing things like NFTs to raise money for different philanthropic, you know, groups or, or projects out of the families that you encounter in your network and the foundations, you know, what is the Venn diagram or the, the, you know, the unexplored space of unmet need as far as groups that don't necessarily have the funding in place yet to pursue a guided cure like Perlara offers? Yeah, we, I don't, I, I want to have an answer here I, I, and we're working on it, but yeah, I think that that is going to be the, the biggest challenge here is how do we access all the financial and fundraising promise of, of crypto. Um, so there's so many things you could try. I think where, where we're focused is on the NFT side, as you said, where, but instead of, you know, uh, a piece of art or a piece of music, if we can attach a, a, a data set um, or something quote unquote scientific, uh, you know, just a different file extension than a JPEG or, or a JPEG presenting, you know, data visualization. Um, like maybe those are the ways that we can say, um, you know, instead of like the traditional crowdfunding model, if you get some kind of a physical perk or something or a signed thank you, right? There's a way to then get an airdrop of, uh, you know, some kind of upside or, or, or other tangent, you know, other, other kind of scientific um, achievements, um, commemorable, scientific memorables, if you will, like if, if, if that can be kind of built into the community engagement model, um, then yeah, I think we can figure out though there'll, there'll be ways where all of a sudden revenue streams and, and other opportunities start to manifest where um, yeah, especially from Perlara's point of view, um, we can figure out ways uh, through alternative revenue streams to make sure that we can sort of make sure people can't afford, can, can be accessed, can access our services if, if the science is really, really, really um, 
sort of uh, ready to go. And then the only thing holding people back is the that initial tranche of funding. But yeah, uh, so many things you can try, but I think an initial kind of IPF and if IP NFT, finding a, a partner to do an IP NFT experiment around a set of rare disease focused, you know, translational projects, um, playing that out and showing people what that looks like. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful other people will then be stimulated to do the same. Getting back to Maggie's Pearl, this model of decentralized biotech that you've built, are there you know, one or two resources that we can point people to who are interested in learning more about this template that you have really learned and put together? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any go-to resources other than like individuals on Twitter, like you, who, who kind of do that um, who performed that wonderful function of like aggregating and curating. So yeah, there was a set of usual suspects, I think among your follow graph and my follow graph um, and, you know, Vincent Wisner, there's, there's others from the Vita Dow group that I think are, you should sort of, yeah, their, their Twitter feed is almost like <laughs> the ideal resource here um, because there's just so much, so much to digest. Um, but I guess, yeah, Overall, like if you want your kind of crypto Bible and, and Dow Bible, I mean, obviously, uh, A6Z has put out a bunch of really great generic resources on that topic. And yeah, you follow anyone like Chris Dixon, you're going to get, you know, that's going to just be background music, right, <laughs> for your day. So I think, yeah, my approach to life is um, I, I wish I used lists more, but I, I tend to just follow uh, influencers. <laughs> on the drug discovery, drug development side of things, do you think that? there are more Maggie's pearls in reach for Perlara over the next couple of years. I hope so. I hope we're going to be, we have the, I just, based on the repurposing data sets that are finally coming uh, to pass, I'm hopeful that this year we can initiate some more pioneer studies, but um, I don't want to put a number on it just yet, but hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll call, we'll be able to call our shots soon enough. But yeah, I think toward the second half of the year, definitely looking to, show that there's possibility for, for more Maggie's pearls, at least on the drug repurposing side. And then we've got ASO projects and other modalities as well that are going to get some attention too. So yeah, I think the, the, the potential here is quite, quite, quite large. Well, I just want to commend you on this journey from a centralized lab to this decentralized biotech and all the progress you've made, everything you've learned and how much effort you put into communicating um, with others in this space and and within, you know, the kind of early stage biotech, founder-led biotech space. I think it's really impressive, inspiring, and there's just a wealth of knowledge there that I think many will will learn from and, and take to uh, new discoveries and new ventures. So I just want to thank you for all of your work in this area. Yeah, no, no worries. Thanks, Jocelyn. Great to, great to chat with you here. Yeah. And, and as we wrap up, um, are there any shout outs you have or places where folks can find you or learn about Perlara or the guided cures? Well, definitely just check out the, the site, Perlara site. There's still more to come. It's still a pretty simple site for now because we things are just working without it getting too fancy. Uh, but yeah, just a shout out to all the, the Perlarans now, the 2.0 Perlarans, uh, the cure guides. Uh, thanks for, for making this model possible. And you know, there's just shy of 30 of us now, but I can see a path to, um, to, to many more. And then, yeah, for the Perlara one crowd that's, uh, that's still out there, 
a shout out to you as well, because because it was really your hard work and experimentation that sort of set the stage for the, the kernel of what then has blossomed into what we have here. So it, I want to recognize it. It, um, it it goes back to that origin team as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Ethan. You're welcome. That wraps up my interview with Ethan Perlstein, head of Perlara Public Benefit Corporation. I hope you learned a lot from Ethan's experience in the decentralized biotech space. Thanks so much for listening to Ultra Rare, the podcast.